it's really a privilege to be here today. Uh, I appreciate the confidence uh, Pastor Pete has put in me to preach today. And um, I bring greetings from Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Um, I've been teaching there as the uh, professor of New Testament for 18 years. Hard to believe it's the longest I've been anywhere in my life. Um, And uh, I've also been serving as part-time dean of the School of Theology and Philosophy. Um, I'd like to pray as we start and ask that God use my words to minister to our needs this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are here with us this morning in the person of the Holy Spirit. Take the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to honor you today. Speak to our hearts through your word, and may it make a difference in our lives this coming week. In Jesus' name, I pray. This morning, we're going to be looking at um, a very important and interesting passage found in James 4, 13 through 17. And this section is sometimes titled, Boasting About Tomorrow. Okay, how many of you, um, I'm a teacher, so I'm used to interacting with my audience here. Uh, And um, how many of you like to boast about what you will be doing tomorrow or next weekend or next year? Would you raise your hand? Okay, we've, we've got some... We've got some takers on that. Okay, now the, the rest of you. How many of you make plans for your next vacation or your business trip or your visit to the relatives? All right. Yeah. Um, not many of us would say that we boast about what we will be doing, but we do make plans. This passage is important because it relates specifically to our everyday lives and plans that we make. Um, I was asked a a few years ago to write the commentary on James for the New Beacon Bible Commentary Series, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, And this jewel of a passage uh, came out in the process of, of that work. So let's look at James 4, 13 through 17. And you can follow along. Um, on the slide or in your Bible. Uh, I'm going to read a a fresh Jeannie Sorrell translation from the original Greek for you. Come now, those who are saying, today or tomorrow we will proceed to this city and we will do a year there and we will uh, trade and we will make a profit. None of you know what will happen tomorrow, what kind of life you will have. For you are a vapor, a steam, the the one appearing for a little while and then disappearing. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and we will do this or that. But now you are boasting in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one knowing to do good and not doing it, to him or her, it is sin. So just as it is important for us to know a few things about each other so we can understand each other, There are a few things we modern readers need to know about the ancient author and his readers. And I'd like to point out a couple of those things um, that that I think will help you understand this passage a little better. First of all, James the author was was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James was a very devout Jewish Christian who headed up the church in Jerusalem, um, of course, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Ancient historians tell us that he died in 62 B.C., 
62 AD, I'm sorry. Um, And the story goes that he was in the Jewish temple praying when the non-Christian Jews came after him. They dragged him to the highest point of the temple, threw him off, and he fell about three or four stories. He survived the fall and was praying for his murderers as they threw rocks at him until he died. James humbly referred to himself as a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The readers uh, were also Jewish Christians who had left Jerusalem and probably settled in Syria or Asia. Um, Now we call that area Turkey. James calls them the 12 tribes of the diaspora. Now, diaspora is a technical term, which means a scattering of the Jews to nations outside of Israel. Um, There's also a couple of cultural issues we need to understand. One is that in the first century Mediterranean culture, um, they tried to protect themselves from the envy of others by hiding the evidence of any increase in wealth or status. They rejected compliments. They shared their wealth and carried on uh, and carried or hung actual amulets against the evil eye. And you can see a whole bunch of those on the screen right now. It was thought that envy in the heart would come out through the eyes and could cause loss and pain to anyone whose eyes looked upon them. Even today in Mediterranean cultures, you'll find a staring eye amulet to ward off this evil eye. In modern Turkey, the blue eye is the form of this evil eye amulet. And families hang a blue eye near the front of their door, front of their house, their front door, in their cars, and even it's even painted on the nose of the Turkish jet airlines. So this is a very important um, aspect. Uh, we take students on trips uh, to the Middle East, um, usually Israel and Jordan and uh, Turkey and Greece. And uh, so some of these pictures are coming from, from those trips. We also just res- recently came back from a trip to uh, Germany and Switzerland where we traced all of the reformers. And I understand you guys have been studying about Martin Luther um, coming up with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Um, that's, that's wonderful. Um, and it's a wonderful heritage. Now, um, we've also got a Aristotle. Some of you may have heard of him. He was the teacher of Alexander the Great. Um, and he helps us to understand the difference between jealousy, as he calls it, competitiveness or assertive jealousy is, is really how he termed that, um, and it's zealous, and any and uh, envy, which we've been talking about, which in Greek is phthanos. He says a person, due to competitiveness or zeal, will better himself to get what he wants, while the one who has envy will try to prevent his neighbor from possessing what he wants, or will even try to take it away from the person who has it, might even consider murder. So there's a big difference between jealousy and envy um, as we think about it in this ancient context. The first century culture understood that everything was in limited supply. This is very different from our culture. For the most part, we think, oh, we'll always be able to get something more. But they felt like land was limited, wealth, blood, health, friendship and love, 
manliness. Now, that was a really important thing back then. Honor, respect, and status, power and influence, security, and safety. So if I'm in good health and I never miss a day of work or school, that meant that someone else had poor health because there wasn't enough to go around for everyone to be healthy at the same time. And it was the same for land and money and friends. Thus, envy was an evil which was discussed often, and people were concerned to get rid of it um, in their own lives, but also to protect themselves from the envy of others. In the first century, envy was recognized by the following behaviors. Ostracization or shunning, gossip, slander, feuding, litigation or lawsuits, and homicide. So it was a a very um, important and... uh, dire kind of situation to be in. And as we, if we look at the passage just before, James warns against slander and judging of others. One scholar says that litigation or taking someone to court in antiquity was not about justice, that is, about getting at the truth of the case. Rather, litigation was about shaming your opponent, thus reducing him or her to public pity. People were often warned not to boast, as that would invite the envy of others. So boasting was not just avoided because it made someone look proud, like we think of today. Um, It was also to be avoided because it invited harm to come to the boasting person and to their family and perhaps even their community. A a second cultural aspect that, that helps us understand this passage is that the first century society was a peasant society. Um, That doesn't mean that everybody was poor, but that everyone, king or beggar, had a peasant mentality in which land ownership and agriculture were the basis of wealth. Most landowners had two homes. They had their country home, um, which was their, um, their home base, and they had their city house. The city house was a place where meetings took place, commerce. There was socializing with the other elites in the city. Perhaps um, we might think of it more as an office where one would also sleep and uh, live for short periods of time. So the cities were primarily market centers. They needed to import supplies to survive. We know that the Apostle Paul and his uh, associates were craft workers who made tents and coats and other things from Cilicium which was a strong water-repellent hair cloth made from the black goats of Cilicia, where Paul grew up. They sold their goods in the cities. Scholars conclude that the typical first-century Christians were free artisan craft workers or small traders. There's evidence that we have some uh, high-status Christians, uh, people that were very close to the emperor as well. And we have some indications that some of the Christians were slaves. But the middle status was very well represented. Because the Jews were a conquered people, it's most likely that James' community belonged primarily to the middle status of artisans like Paul. Or perhaps most of them were small traders or merchants. Cities were divided into different areas based on what products were being sold and the services being offered, much like modern department stores. So instead of thinking about the city of Cleveland as we know it today, maybe think about Cleveland as a department store. Can you do that? 
In other words, uh, when Paul entered a city, he would ask, where are the tent makers? And um, Acts and Paul's writings indicate that he would make acquaintances with the tent makers area, join with some families, and then he would work with them. Now that we understand a little bit more about the culture, let's take a closer look at what the Bible says. Verse 13 begins with a direct address to the merchants and traders. Come now. This was an informal way of addressing one's associates. It is found only here and in James 5.1 in the New Testament, but is found in similar conversational type writings of Greek moral philosophers. The other interesting thing about come now, which I think is significant to this passage, is that it was often used in comedy with the implication that what comes after it is foolish. Okay, so let's listen to what comes after it. James addresses those who are saying, today or tomorrow, we will proceed into the city and we will do a year there and we will trade and we will make a profit. If the scholars are right, these people were the largest part of the community. The reference to today or tomorrow indicates the immediate future. It is part of the trader's job to seek out profit-making possibilities. They probably knew people in the city. They knew there was a market for what their goods were, and they were making careful and concrete plans. So James then in verse 14 says, None of you know. The word translated know is the Greek word epistemi. It's not the common word for know something, which is gnosko. Um, but epistemi or no emphasizes a control of all the data. Like an accountant notes the transactions that affect a financial report. It's a thorough understanding of something. It's a stronger word than gnosko, the common word for no in Greek, in the sense of comprehending or understanding how something works. The next phrase is, is translated literally as the thing of tomorrow. So none of you know the thing of tomorrow. So what does that mean? The meaning here is that we might have an idea of what will happen tomorrow, but we don't know the details. James then asks, asks a qualitative question. What kind of or what sort of? This fits the context of the verb epistemi that we just talked about to know or understand thoroughly. It is an indirect question which can be translated, what kind of life you will have. So none of you know, in that very detailed way, what kind of life you will have. He goes on to say, the shortness of life is captured in the next clause, for you are a vapor, the one appearing for a little while and then disappearing. Um, the word translated vapor is the word for mist, vapor, or steam, which can be seen for a short period of time, but it goes away very quickly. In other words, in the grand scheme of things, our lives are so transient and so uneventful that they resemble the steam which comes off the pot of boiling water. James indicates that the proper attitude should be, not those plans that they were making, Um, only. He says, instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, then we will live and we will do this or that. The, The instead indicates a contrast between what they've been doing, making these plans on their own without even talking to God about them, 
um, and what they should be doing if God wills. James reminds them of the basic truth that their life and death is in God's hands. Um, I'm also uh, a missionary kid. That's a a strong um, identity issue for me. Um, And I grew up in Haiti. My parents were uh, pioneer missionaries there in Haiti. And one of my Haitian friends always said, si je vle, which means if God wills. If you would ask her if she was coming tomorrow, she would respond and say, si je vle. If you asked her where she was going, uh, when she was going to go to the market, she'd give you a date and time and end with si je vle. She used it very often, but I never felt like she used it carelessly. She lived in constant awareness that her life and her plans totally depended on God. It's a good habit to get into. Would you like to learn a little Creole this morning? Haitian Creole? Let's learn it. Si je vle. Say it with me. Si je vle. Si je vle. Good. All right. Good job. Um, you might even want to use the English equivalent, if God wills, and then remind yourself that God is the master of our lives. James says, but now you are boasting in your arrogance. This is very interesting and relates back to the issue of envy. Boasting in Greek can be used both in a positive and a negative sense. Most of the time in English, uh, it's a negative uh, connotation. But in Greek, it can be positive or negative. Um, when we boast in, uh, generally when we uh When it's used or translated in a positive sense, it's translated rejoice or glory in. So we don't even hear the word boasting in our English translations. But boasting, whether positive or negative, indicates what a person thinks gives him or her honor. Okay? So what is it that gives you honor? So the Lord gives us honor. So we rejoice in the Lord. We glory in the Lord. When we boast in the Lord... God or in Jesus, um, and we find this in Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, we find our honor and status in God rather than in our own accomplishments. In this verse, these merchants and traders are boasting in their arrogance. Very interesting word. This word in the Greek means to show off what one is pretending to be or have. So it combines the idea of a hypocrite with excessive pride. James is claiming that because they do not include God in their business plans, they are like the charlatans who go around selling cures which don't work and just waste people's money. Since God is the one who gives the strength and wisdom to make good business plans, it is imperative that he is the author of these plans. Otherwise, the merchants will be making plans they can't keep. James concludes this verse with all such boasting is evil. Um, He has already defined what type of boasting uh, he's talking about, the boasting in arrogance, or we might even say emptiness, boasting in nothing. Um, And he proclaims it to be evil. This is the common word for evil, and it's sometimes used as a noun to refer to the devil. And it's sometimes uh, also used... Well, it's always used in the phrase evil eye. So these evil eye uh, amulets use that same word for evil. 
Boasting, whether in good things or bad, invites envy. And boasting in arrogance is foolish and dangerous from this first century perspective. It invites envy for absolutely no reason. It invites sorrow and pain as a result of another's envy. And it is wicked and malicious and misleading to others. This evil consists of both physical suffering and evil in the moral or spiritual sense. So this is what that first century group was hearing James say. 4.17 defines the sin of omission. Therefore, to the one knowing to do good and is not doing it, to him or her, it is sin. James is uh, encouraging the merchants and traders to do what he says. Now they know they should lead their lives. Uh, Now they know how they should lead their lives. That is, including God in their plans. So they need to do it. The common word for sin means missing the mark or the goal of our lives, which is God. In this context, James is saying that we are guilty and worthy of punishment when we neglect to do the good that we know to do. The sin of omission is not something to be taken lightly, like a mistake or a fault. Now, what does all this mean to us? Okay, we've been pretty much trying to get you back into the first century mindset to kind of pick out what the major um, principles might be. And I, I see three main principles here in James 4. First, God is our source. God is the source of our daily physical strength, our very life force, our mental abilities, our talents are all from God. When we plan our lives without acknowledging God's involvement and asking for his direction, we are ungrateful and disrespectful of the one who is the very source of our lives. Our arrogance and thinking that we are the ones that make things happen will eventually bring sorrow and pain into our lives. We need to be like my Haitian friend and acknowledge our dependence on God. Si je veux, if God wills. Let's ask ourselves... When was the last time we thanked God for our health? If you're, if you're older like me, it may have been today. Some of our younger ones may have been taking it pretty much for granted. What about the gifts and abilities he has given us? Do we really acknowledge that God gives us the ability to work and provide for our families? So many times we relegate God to our spiritual lives and salvation And that's a very important part of our existence. But the Bible tells us that God created human beings. He formed them in the womb, and he gives us our daily bread. It is part of the human condition to realize that we live at the pleasure and mercy of God. Let me challenge you to ask God to guide and direct you each morning as you get up. Start with an acknowledgement that God is the one who is the Lord of your life. If God wills, then expect him to direct you to people and situations who need him, his love, and his grace. Secondly, since life is so short, we need God's direction. Recognize how short our lives are, especially from the view of eternity. There's a song by the music group Rush which expresses that transition from thinking we will live on this earth forever to the realization that our lives on this earth are short. When we were young, wandering the face of the earth, wondering what our dreams might be worth, 
learning that we're only immortal for a limited time. I love the irony of those last two lines. Learning that we're only immortal for a limited time. God has always existed, and in the light of eternity, the few years we are here on earth are like a blink of an eye. This reinforces James' point that we need to ask for God's direction in our lives. He is all wise, and he understands what is most important. When we understand that God's existence and understanding is so vast, it becomes easy to ask God for wisdom and to submit to his will. The one who is the beginning and the end is wise enough to guide our short, fleeting lives. And third, to live in close relationship with God, we need to do what he asks. Not just avoiding doing evil. This verse is often referred to as describing the sin of omission, not doing what we know we should do. It's not enough just to avoid doing the wrong thing. We need to do what God asks us to do. Good works or actions are a response to God's presence in our lives. They are the positive actions which build up the community and make a difference in this world. 